at um, supper time this evening uh, Fabrice and Natalie and Gail and I were speaking a little bit about the retreat and kind of noticing or being impressed by a certain steadiness and quietitude and sincerity that seems to be quite well and quite beautifully established. Even though this is just the first day of our retreat, even though you've been here less than 24 hours, and even though there are no doubt various um, challenges in being here. The timing of the day may feel challenging. The, um, the dreaded stretching that some of you referred to yesterday may be challenging. For some of you, maybe sharing a room is challenging. You know, especially if your roommate snores or something. And of course, in many ways, the nature of engaging in transformational practices is itself designed in some ways to be challenging. Not on purpose. It's not like we want you to have a hard time. Not at all. I would actually most like you to just sit here completely freely all week. That's what I'm interested in when I come in the morning to give meditation instructions, when I sit with you, when I give these reflections in the evening, all of that is offered in, the, uh, in support of us meeting our experience freely. And how would that show up, that exp- meeting our experience freely? With a certain kind of great inner graciousness in the way we meet experience. Experience itself may be pleasant or unpleasant, but the capacity to kind of um, meet it freely, meet it without making what I was calling this morning a lot of ego dramas, meeting experience without uh, friction, without fussing and fighting and freaking out. So, here we are, sitting, as I say, in this with what seems and feels to be this sort of steadiness and sincerity. And I'm very appreciative of that. And I'm aware that in the midst of, of all of that, that, you know, some friction is no doubt being experienced. So there may be moments of ease, peace, joy, appreciation, gratitude, wonder, etc. And there may be those those certain directions the mind in the mind goes in eh, that causes some kind of challenge or friction. And I thought it might be helpful maybe to reflect on um, on some of the classic directions that the mind goes in. The meditators 
top five troublesome mind states. We spoke about one of them this morning, right? The tendency to go dull in meditation. That um, heavy, soupy, foggy state, sort of severe energy drop. And we spoke about one skillful means among many, raising the raising the arms, and I saw some of you doing that at other moments during the day. It's also so helpful sometimes just to, really, to raise the eyes, open them and raise them, or even with them closed, just raising the eyes sometimes how stimulates the energy a little bit. Or another thing that tends to stimulate the interest and energy is to stop breathing for a while. So you go breath, not very interesting, you go a bit dull. And an old friend of mine who's a monk says, Oh, good way to deal with dullness. Just at the end of the out breath, just stop for a while. And after 20, 30 seconds, one feels more awake and one did before, suddenly breath, which seemed rather dull and uninteresting beforehand, somehow, suddenly one's very interested in the next breath. And even though that kind of particular dullness uh, happens in meditation, and we spoke about it this morning as a kind of um, a reaction to low stimulation, we can also see the equivalent uh, sort of direction that the mind goes in in the rest of our life. Right? What do you do with lack of stimulation? What do you do with boredom? What do you do when nothing particularly interesting or energizing or stimulating is happening? And we may find there's a link, actually, between uh, the the ways that we find or the ways we choose to go unconscious in our life, or a link between the tendency to go unconscious as a certain escape from engaging with what's here, what's happening. And the tendency to go dull, or we might say to indulge in dullness in meditation. So these different mind states that, are, you know, like I say, are classical. Right? They're not just about meditation practice. They're really ways that we see our habits of mind, ways that we learn about the habits of mind and ways that we can get skillful with our habits of mind. It might be interesting, you know. It might take a while to see that, but maybe there's a link, an important link, powerful link, between the willingness in that dull state in meditation to actually open your eyes, 
lift your arms and stay present. Maybe there's a link between that willingness there and the willingness in the rest of our life to actually stay contactful with ourselves when the habit is to switch off, to go unconscious, to kind of hide from life in some way. Another common direction the mind goes in, kind of the opposite, if the dullness is a sort of drop in interest and energy level, then what's the opposite of kind of a surfeit, a surplus, an excess of energy and of interest? Suddenly, there's so much to be interested in. Any, everything, anything except this. And so energetically, rather than being dull and going unconscious, energetically one's agitated. Right? And one kind of thinks of all kinds of things. Well, I could be doing this. I could be doing that. How much longer until whatever? Lunch, usually. Right? <laughs> And maybe, I mean, it's, it's obvious maybe, maybe there's a link between the habit of following our agitation in meditation and the habit of following our agitation in life. Right? The, these states, like I say, they're common. Top five states, we all recognize them. They, they're, just, they're just human states. Right? So it's not the problematic particularly that they arise, but what's interesting or where the friction arises is the degree to which we identify with and follow the states. If we just notice agitation itself, if we don't identify with it or follow it, then we might recognize a certain kind of electricity just you know, energetically, physically, a certain kind of slightly over-caffeinated feeling. Right? And actually it may even, for some of you who like to drink a lot of coffee in the morning, it may even just literally be that. Right? Oh dear, I shouldn't have had that third cup. Right? And then we come in here at 10 o'clock, meditation. <laughs> And again, we might, we might uh, ask ourselves, we might reflect on our lives as we notice our relationship with agitation, just as it plays out here during the days, just as it plays out in meditation, just as it plays out when we've somehow gotten agitated about, for example, how long the meditation is. And the way agi- agitation can create so much drama we think, okay, here we go, I'm going to breathe, okay, I'll sit, I'll wait. Nah, 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 nah. Let me check the time. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so much seems to have happened in my poor feverish head and only a couple of minutes has gone by. So, 
as we see our relationship to agitation and we get the opportunity to really see that up close under the microscope of meditation practice, and we get to see our minds up close, then we might reflect and ask ourselves, wow, how do I identify with and follow agitation in the rest of my life? How much of my um, actions, how much of the time and energy and effort and money and movement do I invest in things which are basically just born of agitation? Or in other words, born of an incapacity to just feel life in its kind of certain busyness or certain electricness. So again, the state itself isn't troublesome, right? But how easily we get into trouble or friction with it. One of the skillful things we can do with agitation is, is really let yourself be supported by the quality of the out-breath. It's quite beautiful, actually, that every kind of second moment, an out-breath comes along. An out-breath really is, well, on the one hand, it's an invitation to relax. On the other hand, and, or at the same time, it's actually a, a, um, an expression of the fundamental relaxing nature of body and world. Actually everything, all phenomena have this movement where they kind of where there's an arising, a taking birth, a gathering energy, right? an in breath in other words, a birth and an expression, and then Having kind of gotten to the zenith, is it called? Like just like the in-breath reaches the zenith. A natural descent, a natural fading, a natural resting. Maybe, actually recognizing, oh, this is agitation, rather than just investing in all the thoughts of, you know, how long will this last, and maybe I should do this, and I can't wait for that, and etc., uh, etc. Et maybe if we're actually to kind of engage with that agitated state, maybe if we're actually to, to kind of um, dare to meet it, feel it, breathe out into it. Maybe that might be part, over time, you know, with some consistency, of actually a transformed relationship with agitation, restlessness, etc., in the rest of our lives. It's quite a vision, actually, of a certain freedom of being. To... Abide in such a way that 
the agitation and restlessness, which we all know, loses a lot of its power over us. Another classic mind direction is kind of um, well, basically negativity, right? And some of us, this isn't just a you know, this is like a whole life orientation. Some of us love to find something to fixate on that's wrong, and off we go. Right? It's like we're scanning. The environment, something to be wrong. Ah, then we find it. That's wrong. And it might be somebody who's wrong, something somebody said, something somebody did. It might be something in the situation that's wrong. And then we can really build up a lot of... It's actually quite satisfying in the beginning. Those of us who are really into negativity, you know, you notice it's quite a strong pull in the mind, the wanting to be negative. You know, sometimes when somebody does something and this time it's really definitely clear they're absolutely wrong. And this time I'm really justified. This thing has a mind of its own sometimes. See? And And then the... The, the delight or the glee that we feel. Glee, you know that word? Glee, it's like, oh. Delicia, it, it, The delight that we feel in being justified in kind of the ranting about what he did, what she said, or how rude or how outrageous or how stupid or how whatever it is. And... If we really notice what we're doing in trying to find an object to demonize, it's an attempt to feel for, to ourselves to feel somehow better, or righter, or okayer. <laughs> okayer. <laughs> Plus okay. <laughs> and you know, that um, takes a certain willingness to be able to see that. It's not so glamorous. right? We would like our spiritual practice to be glamorous. The posters that you see in kind of spiritual magazines or websites, they tend to make it look very glamorous. There's somebody, usually a blonde white woman in a vest, for some reason, sitting like this. Actually, they usually sit like this. Oh, and kind of exuding some sort of peaceful feeling. <laughs> That's how you sell a meditation retreat, right? Like this. Mm, except it's not me in the photo. It's some, somebody kind of young and, you know, beautiful looking like this. Mm. And then when we get here... And But again, what a what a, a transformational practice. What a liberating possibility. Rather than just identifying with our habitual negativity. Right? Actually seeing it as that. 
oh, it's negativity. That's just, that's a habit of mind. It's a habit of mind that we all know. Some of us, like I say, it may be our speciality, right? But it's one that we all know. And so you might just, just consider today. You might make room for considering tomorrow or whenever it might arise. Those things which we latch onto as being wrong or bad or unsatisfactory. And then what do you do with it? How much mileage, how much, um, uh, how to say that, how much mileage do you get out of that negativity? Does that fit in French? I don't know. And what might it be like just to put it down? Of course there are things you don't like. Of course people say things or do things that you don't like. It's a strange idea to think that all of life could organize itself just to align with my preferences. So one could come here on retreat, for example, and then one could think of all kinds of things that could be done differently. Right? And maybe that's your kind of mind state. I remember once a long time ago when I was uh, managing a retreat in a monastery in Thailand, and there was this one guy and he came very helpfully and pointed out something that was wrong. And I think there was something in the bathroom that was no good. And if we give him a spanner, he would fix it and sort it all out. So I thought, okay, that's good. I gave him, I found him a spanner, and he, okay. Then the next day he came to me again. I found something else that's wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. And then he told me what this thing was. It's a long time ago now. I don't remember the details. By the third or fourth thing, right, he found it was clear that it really wasn't about. You know, the, 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 the various details that he'd fixated upon it was much more just about the tendency to fixate. So, hey, you know, negativity arises. And we can feed it and invest in it and believe it and kind of ride off into the sunset on it. Or we can recognize it and leave it alone. Maybe even actually care for it. You know, this poor mind that seems to need to uh, get into some, um, some negativity. A couple of years ago, somebody came here on retreat and there was some kind of uh, grève. You know, like, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know who it was on strike. There's so many people to choose from. It could have been the air traffic controllers. It could have been the train drivers. It could have been the airline people. It could have been, you know, or maybe it was all of them. That's what usually happens in France. One lot start and the next one come out in solidarity. And before you know it, nothing works for a few days. So 
that it was a it was a strike, and so the person who was coming from Ireland, I think, you know, they had a difficult journey, and they got here later than planned, and you know, that was a, it's it's a nuisance, and so, but unfortunately, by the time the person arrived had gotten here, the negativity had gotten a big grip on her. So she came to see me. She'd had the whole journey to build up the list right, of things. And somehow it all seemed to be the fault of the Mulan. <laughs> and she uh, came and met somebody who was doing registration and she wasn't at all satisfied with the person that she met. So she asked, I want to see the teacher. So she came to see me with uh, the list. And she had poor love. She had this very long list. You should have. You, you should be. Your website should have information for strikes on it. Right? You should be have a plan B when people go on strike, and you should do this, and you should do that, and, you should. and then when I arrived, somebody met me, this and this, and then the, this was wrong, and that was wrong, and this was wrong. What to do? So you know, and, and the, the accusations were all being. You know, we, I was the object of that negativity in that moment, right? Or the representative of the Mulan, which was the object of that negativity. And when, when she eventually got to the end of her um, tirade, I said, wow, sounds like you've had a really tough day. You know, and I, you know, I was sincere. I meant it. It's not easy. Not not the strikes. I mean, strikes are a nuisance. Right? That's what the Buddha calls the first arrow of dukkha. Right? The stuff we can't do anything about, or what in con- in uh, contemporary language we say, shit happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> But then what's really tough is to move through that day with the complaining mind, the ranting mind, the negativizing mind. Right? That's Buddhist language, the second arrow. Right? The second arrow, which is when the first arrow arises and we spend, rather than just, what do you need to do if you get shot by an arrow? Take it out. Attend to the wound. But the example the Buddha gives is, having been shot by the first arrow, we start to get, who shot this arrow? What's this arrow made from? How long is this arrow? Which direction did this arrow come from? And interesting, you know, having just, just recognizing with her, wow, it sounds like you've had a tough day. I didn't tell her about arrows. I just said, oh, you... <laughs> and something softened in her in that moment, right? Because when we're getting negative, we expect negativity to be met with negativity. We're actually almost hoping for conflict. Because in the conflict, we get to feel right and bigger and stronger and we love to be right. So it was interesting in that moment, in not meeting that and just, oh yeah, 
Sounds like you've had a hard time in actually, in other words, caring for the negativity rather than getting into the story of it. As I say, something softened in her. And then she started to feel, wow, what a long, difficult, painful, tiring day it had been. And in that moment she could actually arrive a little bit more. And so we have the same opportunity when noticing the negativity going on internally, right? Oh, we might say to our own crazy mind, seems like you're having a hard day. And then, of course, if that one difficult direction is fixating on what's wrong, fixating on the, on the something unpleasant and generating a lot of negativity around it. Other direction, fixating on something pleasant and generating a lot of wanting around it. And, you know, we can see that playing out anywhere, everywhere in our lives, in other people's lives, right? The, you know, the huge energy of wanting, even the word wanting, right? It's kind of exciting. What do you want? <gasps> oh, where shall I start? Right? And then, you know, the, to the extent that we're identified with our wanting, hey, we can easily bring that to the Mulan, or to a retreat. It's a little difficult because there's our options for pursuing what we want are a little bit inconveniently constrained on retreat. So that's why, like I say, lunch starts to become this kind of <laughs> big shining beacon in the middle of the day. Because it's... It's about the only thing that the wanting can really latch onto. Or we can we can get into practicing in meditation with a lot of wanting. I I suffered a lot in my own practice early on in just in practicing through the lens of of wanting. And it was partly motivated by a certain sincerity. You know, I kind of, I discovered this practice and I loved it and I wanted to just kind of dive in deeply. I wanted to, there's this encouragement of the Buddha where he says you should practice as if your hair is on fire. I never really knew what that meant other than, oh, that's why all the monks are bald then, right? (laughs) But to me it felt like, Gotta, I want to go for it. You know. Okay, meditation. And I actually used to have this kind of feeling when I would sit down at the beginning of a sitting on a retreat as if, you know, in the, like in the movie where if they're in a spaceship and it's the countdown to take off, it was like, okay, strap in, you know, 10, 9, okay, legs crossed, arms out, sit up straight, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> you know. Wow. And very strong idea of wanting concentration, right? Uh, of wanting some kind of um, deep experience, some kind of satori, uh, awakening. 
And it was a pretty, it's a pretty painful way to practice. It tends to be very hard on the body because one's sitting with a certain degree of tension, right? a kind of leaning in to experience, leaning forward as if the peace or the experience I'm searching is just slightly ahead of me. And you can see that sometimes, or maybe you can feel that in your own practice, right? When you get into fixating on trying to attain, trying to get a particular experience, trying to get something to happen, that kind of leaning in. Hey, by itself, nothing wrong with wanting. Actually, there's a lot of dynamism in wanting. There's a lot of heart can be there in wanting. But it's hard for us to really feel that dynamism and creativity and heart if we're just fixated on the object. So again, in your practice, to really attend to the wanting mind. To see if when the wanting is there, if the sensing and exploring wanting itself can be, can be more primary than just fixating on the object of wanting. And maybe that might be quite transformative, quite liberating to kind of evolve our relationship with wanting. To actually be able to explore wanting rather than just being pulled and pushed around by whichever objects of desire happen to appear in our mindscape in any given moment. And then there's this other kind of classic direction that the mind gets pulled in, which has a lot of different levels of subtlety. It's, um, it's basically a kind of scepticism. Right? That we get into a sort of sceptical relationship with what's happening. Right? It may be that we're sceptical about ourselves. Why did I come here? I could have gone to the beach, etc. We're skeptical about our capacity to sit. We look around, everyone's like this. And I'm like, oh my God. Uh, knees and back and time. And I don't understand why everybody else looks like a Buddha and I feel like a wreck. Right? And then the skepticism, the doubt, self-doubt, and that's a big area of the scepticism. Self-doubt, doubt in oneself. Or, you know, the doubt can go in all kinds of directions, right? Doubt in, the, in this kind of practice or teaching. And it may be that just yesterday, you know, you'd, you'd, and you'd read some books or you'd spoken to some people who'd been here before or some friend had told you that they'd sat with me and it all seemed like good stuff until you actually got here. And 
then suddenly, yeah, but I didn't realize we'd be expected to sit for this long. Right? That's not realistic. You know, that's and it can't be good for my legs, and etc., etc. So the doubt in oneself, or doubt in the situation, or etc. All that, the way in which a doubt kind of, and the effect of it, of course, is that it undermines our confidence, undermines our capacity to actually be here and feel into and to actually find out about experience. How can you really find out about experience when you already have some fixed view about it? And that's really the, the sort of the next layer down of skepticism is having some fixed view. And, you know, we've, most of us have spent some decades establishing fixed views that feel so um, normal and natural and they're the kind of fixed views that we've established because they're the same fixed views that get reflected to us all around us, the views that our education has reinforced, that have been culturally reinforced, familially reinforced, and just psychologically reinforced. They're actually the views that make sense to a certain level of human development, we could say, to the kind of the normal psychological adultish level of development which most of us have made it to. And they're, they're the kind of fixed views that say, you know, this is my body, and this is my mind, and this is who I am, and this is the world, and this is France, and these are other people, and that's the way it is. Right? And that seems so logical that we might, if we to say maybe that's not the way it is, it starts to sound a little even psychologically questionable. But there's a, a way in which we start to see that what I'm, we're calling skepticism or doubt or getting caught in fixed views, there's a way in which we start to see a lot of our mind activity actually, especially the mind activity that's just kind of automatic, thinking about this, thinking about that, mind going here, mind going there, wondering about this, remembering that, fantasizing a bit about something else. But a lot of what that mind activity is doing is, is kind of subtly but powerfully reinforcing our habitual views about ourselves and about life. And all the thoughts that begin with I, basically... I think that. I remember when I was. I wished that she or he would. All of those, just ordinary thoughts. Nothing wrong with them. But we might start to see how all of them are reinforcing a particular view of reality. A view where basically I feel like a, a self. I feel kind of separate from everything else in the universe. And everything else in the universe is sort of out there somewhere. And it all seems to belong. You all belong to this general view I have. 
of reality. Just look out at the moment. Everything seems to belong or fits. Right. But there's one thing that isn't out there with everything else. It's over here. It's just one thing that's a little bit separate from everything else in the universe. Oh, it's me. I'm the very center of the whole universe. The universe spreads out in every direction. And here I am, right in the middle of it. Well, now, that which seemed to be a certainty and obvious and a fixed view starts to look a little bit egocentric. Right? I mean, literally, that's what egocentric means, right? Egocentric, self-centered. I am in the middle of everything else is, is there. And then I am the, the experiencer of, in some ways, the master of, seems, but in some ways also the, um, at the mercy of all this stuff that happens to me. And then I spend my life trying to manage this stuff, trying to get certain stuff, right? trying to not have certain other stuff happen. And that's such a such a, a habitual, ordinary view of a human life. I'm over here, and I'm trying to get through my life comfortably, successfully, etc., etc. That we wouldn't even know how to question that view. But, like we say, meditation is a way of putting our experience under the microscope of intimate awareness of a kind of rather direct knowing. And these practices that we're doing, right, coming back with our attention to the flickering of bodily sensations, to the naturalness of breath, to the passing of sounds, might start to give us a taste of the fact that I'm not doing this life. I'm not in charge of this life. Actually, we might start to really taste in a quite deep way the way breath is breathing naturally. Body is functioning naturally. Life is expressing itself freely. We might start to taste that even though I describe myself as being over here or in here and life as being out there, that when I really listen, when I really feel, that in my direct experience I can't really find where the end of experience is and where the beginning of the experiencer is. The experiencer I can't find where the end of experience is and where the beginning of the experiencer is. J'arrive pas à trouver où est la fin ou la limite de l'expérience et où est le début de lui, celui qui expérimente. Common sense knows that boundary or we might say actually makes that boundary. And yet we're looking for the rather uncommon sense that we call intimacy 
or awareness or meditative attention. An uncommon sense that can um, open things up. Open things up maybe so much that we're really, if we're most honest, we're not really able to say what this is or who this is or how all this is operating. But that in that in common sense, we feel so increasingly close to and engaged with and responsive to all of this that our experience of it feels increasingly free, fluid, full. So the encouragement, friends, is to pay attention to your experience and to the various kind of displays of different states of mind. And maybe even most particularly to those states of mind that might easily seem to us like they're somehow a wrong state or a difficult state. Dullness or agitation, negativity or wanting, doubt or skepticism. Because actually in our engagement with these states something can come alive, something can get cultivated, something can get freed up. And in the light of that, we start to see that there really is no wrong experience. Everything yields to awareness. Everything opens to inquiry. Everything unfolds freely. And our days together here are really in the service of that discovery. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.